You Make the Card for, and its meaning for vintage on episode 22 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 22 of So Many Insane Plays, in which we discuss You Make the Card 4 and its significance and meaning for vintage. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. First up, we have some tournament announcements. We have upcoming events, the Team Serious Open on March 24 in Columbus, Ohio, which is always a good time. And Steve, you've got a Eudaimonia tournament on April 13 out there in California. I ex- assume you'll be playing at that one. Yeah, we're really excited to bring Vintage back to Berkeley. So this will be the first Vintage tournament in Berkeley at Eudaimonia in, I think, oh, about a year, so, if not longer. So I've worked with the uh, store owner there to try and get this up and running, and if and if we can get a decent turnout, we'll continue to do it. So please come out and support Vintage in the Bay. Awesome. Do you have any other announcements for this week? Well, if you haven't already, check out the last chapter of his, the History of Vintage, Schools and Magic. Um, the last one that's published as of this recording is 1997, which was really an epic chapter. It's, uh, you know, just, I think, like 40 pages of just amazing history. 1998 is probably going to be published this Sunday, and I've already, I'm have already i already working on 1999, which is really a remarkable year as well. So be sure to check out the series on Eternal Central. I also published a free article on the Vintage Rogue Hermit deck. And I'm writing a tournament report from my first place finish at Bakerville last week, again with Burning Tendrils. Awesome. On Monday the 11th, Ethan Fleischer posted an article on DailyMTG.com, Wizards.com, where he announced You Make the Card number 4, the fourth in the series of the public development of Magic cards. So Kevin, for the benefit of our audience, why don't you talk about the history of this series and its significance? As I said, this is number four, and the first three were conducted actually many years ago, 2002, three, and four, respectively. So we've had a significant gap since the third uh, iteration in the series. This was a really big surprise. I mean, I think pretty much everyone was floored with this announcement, weren't you? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I had sort of forgotten about this. I sort of written it off as the sort of thing that they wouldn't do anymore. So I was pleasantly surprised. I think these things are great for the game and the the audience in general. There are very few opportunities for players to actually create magic cards. The only two really have been historically this and the Magic Slash Duelist Invitational. Mm -hmm. Exactly, which is why I like this so much. I think it's great. And I think it brings people into the game, creates a dialogue. It's just win-win all the way around. So let's go through the history. You said 2002, 2003, 2004. What were the what were the, the cards that were made? Let's go one year at a time. You Make the Card 1 started in January of 2002, and it ultimately resulted in the card Forgotten Ancient, 
which is a green creature that was printed in Scourge. He's the one that gets plus one, plus one counters whenever anyone plays a spell, and then during your upkeep you can move those counters onto other creatures. That one started, which I think is going to be a starting point for our conversation in all of these, that one started with a choice of color, and then moved on when people chose green, it moved on to card type and then mechanics, and it ended up, last step was the flavor part, the art and the name. That card ended up being a big disappointment, um, largely because the card never really saw any play. I seem to recall, this is stretching my memory, that one of the final votes was on the casting cost, and we were presented with a number of casting costs, and the final one ended up being, why don't you just, actually, we should have done this, why don't you tell us what Forgotten Ancient does? (laughs) Forgotten Ancient is a creature elemental for three green Whenever a player casts a spell, you may put a plus one, plus one counter on Forgotten Ancient. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may move any number of plus one, plus one counters from Forgotten Ancient onto other creatures. It is a zero three. So I think there was there were several casting costs. I remember at least there was a three casting cost option, if not a two casting cost. And the two casting costs might have started out as a zero one. But you're, it seems to me you're absolutely right. It was something of an iterative process. The first option they presented after we got to color and type and some other things and mechanic, we we got an option to choose basically the size, small, medium, large, and basically medium one. And so then they presented us with a number of combinations of casting cost and power and toughness and it's ironic that you are honed in on that one because the audience voted and chose a more aggressive power toughness casting cost combination than than design would allow so they came back and said what we voted on was too good here are some other options you need to revise the vote it was a very interesting part of that process that so it, was, uh, it was an iterative process definitely r&d it wasn't just a, it wasn't a decision by it wasn't sort of like sort of like how actually the duelist submissions have been right the duelist invitational submissions exactly they they so, took the opportunity so the, to tweak the options after they were initially presented so in the original thing do you vote did the players vote for the two casting cost creature the mana cost was voted on and they presented looks like 10 options ranging from two mana to four mana and different power and toughness configurations and it's interesting that there was a runoff between three of the combinations and the winner eventually was an o3 for one green green and clever listeners will note that that's not actually how forgotten ancient was printed because they had to come back and said i'm quoting Mark Rosewater's article here, developer Brian Schneider had to come back to ask you how you all wanted to tweak Mr. Baby Cakes, and that was the preliminary name, since his original stats proved too good in playtesting. The vote was close, but 0-3 for 3 green won by a hair. And it's very interesting, Steve, the percentages were just razor thin here. They presented three options, an 0-3 for 3 green, an 0-4 for 2 green green, and an 0-1 for 1 green green. And the lowest vote getting her there was 32.4%. The winner was 35.1%. So it was a functionally right down the middle. A tie. Yeah. I mean, the lowest vote was basically 33%. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's amazing. What's amazing, though, is the lowest vote of those three is probably the best creature. Oh. Because it's the cheapest. Well, I think you and I are on <laughs> so the same page there. That's And that's shocking. It's shocking to me that, that what, 67% of the vote, 69% of the vote went for a forecasting cost creature? <sighs> Terrible. And that's in the runoff, only 24% voted for the t- one of the two mana versions. I'm sorry, there was only one two mana version. There was an 01 for GG. 
that got 24.5% of the initial vote. And you and I are both completely on the same page, but we're pretty spiky vintage players that if you have a creature that's going to grow, especially because it's going to grow when you play subsequent spells, you want it to be the cheapest possible creature. Right, and you would think that that principle applies across formats. I mean, a creature that grows, you want to get into play as quickly as possible. Its initial power and toughness is not particularly important. <clears throat> well, I think plenty of people must it's have been... In 2002, plenty of people were really sensitive to it being big enough to survive something like a shock, I believe, in this day. So there was, what's interesting is that there were 10 initial options, right? Yep. 10, and then they, they did a runoff of three. That's right. But this is, but this is, after they, this is before or after they came back and said that the initial was too good. No, the, there were 10 options. They did a runoff of three. Some time passed. They came back and said the one you chose was actually too good, so here's three variants of that. And they voted on that, and they didn't do a runoff. It was just a straight first, second, and third, and there was only two and a half percent separating first and third place there. But there, there is a runoff vote because some one of these things they say there will be a runoff vote. There is from the initial ten down to the the, the first three, which arrived at the two good version. I see. So, the, but the the runoff though is the, is this the, this uh, step twenty one right? No. It has the no, oh, that's the, after. the runoff occurred in okay. step 11. It was after the first casting cost vote. How many options were in the runoff? Three. What? See, this is... A two, um, a three, and a four-mana version were in the runoff, and the four-mana okay, version won. No, no, no. That's I'm, amazing. I'm sorry. I, I lied. A two, a three, and a four-mana version were in the runoff. A three-mana version won, a zero-three for one GG. That was the version that was deemed too good by R&D. They came gotcha. back with variations on that one. A two a three mana version and two four mana versions and the easier to cast zero three version one of the and then we ended up with a card that had dis- no discernible impact on magic <laughs> no not in, all. not in tournament magic at the time the only place it sees play anymore is in casual edh it's a fun card it's good it's obviously much better in multiplayer but it's still a marginal card there too right so you think this was a success? I mean, how many steps, like 30 steps involved, a lot of R&D time. Yeah, at least 24 different articles devoted to it. But it's not about the process, really. They had, what, 15,000 votes? Yeah, a lot of votes. That's right. They were getting a lot of traffic to the website. See, this this particular, this first foray into this kind of interactivity with their audience had a lot of different benefits. The quality of the card is only one of them. In fact, you know, if R&D was developing this card, they probably would have taken maybe our position, which is make a smaller one that's going to grow more later. But the point is, is that this was, I think, a smashing success. This card's not that hot. I happen to like it and casual. But the fact is, is that they immediately did two more of these in subsequent years. It's pretty clear that they thought this was a success. Okay. So but what are those benefits? You Engagement with your audience. Plus, this was in the early years of Wizards.com, so they're driving traffic to their website, which you had to know was a consideration, which is why I believe they didn't have any compunction about this being 20-plus steps. Are you kidding? You get <laughs> your, your whole audience to read a series of 20 to 25 articles? That's amazing. That's a giant win. Plus, they were conducting all of the voting on their website. I mean, not that you mentioned it. I probably read them for that, that reason. Yeah. I usually don't check MTG and also keep in mind this is in the era before Twitter. So this is this was the social interaction for the player base with R and D at this time. Okay. That that's good enough. So let's move to the second one then. In two thousand so when- January of two thousand three, they started You Make the Card Two, 
with the introduction article again by Mark Rosewater. And the first choice this time was color, which I would put in quotations because it excluded green since green had won the previous choice and it added artifact. And yes, artifacts, not a color, but sticking with the theme here, the vote was between artifact, black, white, blue, and red and artifact won. 26% of the total voted. There was no runoff. <laughs> 26% of the vote is the winner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so began the development of Crucible of Worlds. I, I think that these these voting patterns illustrate something really interesting, which is that by providing all these options, you you probably have people who would be have have uh, shared preferences, splitting votes in different ways and in an unpredictable ways. Naturally, so Wizards has to be very careful as to how it, it structures these votes. Um, it seems to me that I, I actually tend to prefer the idea of a runoff in almost all of these votes because it gives people an opportunity when presented with a focus choice to sort of decide for themselves as opposed to, you know, so if you look at these, um, it's pretty evenly distributed, right? So, I mean, you've given everyone a chance to narrow down. I, I like the idea of giving giving people another sh- another bite of the apple so that you really have a better reflection of community preference overall as opposed to the possibility of people splitting votes. So, if, for example, if people really like blue-white control, you know, they have to choose blue or white. But if they're if they're given just the option of black or, or white, then, you know, then they're going to vote white. So you get a clearer sense of where people are. Do you think, do you think, for example, Artifact would have won if there was a runoff between black and Artifact? I don't know. Boy, <laughs> it's impossible to say. They're relatively close. Yeah. For those listening, Artifact got 26%, black got 22% in this non-runoff vote. And so you bring up a very good point. It seems like, obviously, we're mixing chocolate and peanut butter when you try to vote on Artifact compared to a list of colors. <laughs> you could have given the people a choice right up front. Do you want to make a colored spell or do you want to make a colorless card, yeah. for example? And that choice would have been a fascinating distinction. And then you could have your runoff if Artifact wins versus versus exactly. Artifact and Land that's, or something. That's that's actually implicit in what I was saying, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a weird thing here because... You're, it's like artifact is a spell type, not a. <laughs> yeah, this is it's very and, weird. And and so it's like it's almost unfair. It's like artifact, of course, seems more exciting than one of these colors would do anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just they have to be very careful in how they structure these things. The, well, it's I don't particularly believe that fairness is the end all and be all of this process. Of course, they just want people to feel like their voice is heard. So. There's really no loser in this situation. It's pretty clear, though, that they do want to explore all the possibilities because the loser, every the loser, are the, the loser is the fan of black cards <laughs> who got who got twenty who got you know two percent more than baseline, right? Well, it, it, yes and no. What if there's a person who is a fan of black cards and artifacts? What if their favorite deck, right. yeah, right. is a fifty-fifty, right. and so that person wins either way? <laughs> the point is, is that they pretty clearly recognize that they don't want to. They don't want to get the same result every time. They are clearly trying to appeal to different types of players by the fact that they've mechanically conducted each of these four you-make-the-card processes differently from the start. Right. So what's the next step in this? What was the next step? After Artifact was selected, they chose Creature or Non-Creature, a very simple binary choice in Non-Creature 1. And then they took an interesting... I want to ask you something about that. Yeah. You've, are you surprised by that? Am I surprised that non-creature won? No. Yeah. No, because I believe that artifact creatures are not very interesting inherently, 
because that's my view as well. I just don't want people to mistake the mistake the results of that. Oh, for saying that people prefer non creatures to creatures. What I think that says is that given that the card is an artifact, people are more interested in an artifact that's a non creature. Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I think that's you, you don't want people to jump to that assumption. So now that we know we're, we're dealing with a non creature artifact, they chose another binary, which was flavor or function. Pretty broad concept, but they're basically talking about do you want to choose the flavor of the card from a top-down perspective, or do you want to build it functionally from the bottom up? That's fascinating. So they're giving they're giving the audience an opportunity to de- to de- to decide on a design approach, yeah, rather than <laughs> rather than an actual card. And this is very is essentially go ahead. this is very pivotal because this basically determined the functional focus of the process for you make the card three. The audience chose to do function here. Granted, we're deep into the process already, but since flavor lost, I think that was a major reason why they chose flavor to start you make the card three. But I'm skipping ahead. Okay. Well, why don't we just why don't you tell us what card came out of you make the card two? Well, that was Crucible of Worlds. The step after function was chose chosen. They solicited ideas for the mechanics of the card by the audience. They ended up with ten of them. People voted. There was a runoff, and the functionality that we all know and love now of playing lands out of your graveyard, which was one of the ones submitted, was the one that won. And they went on. Crucible of Worlds. They went on from that point to do the flavor aspects afterward. Crucible of Worlds is undoubtedly one of the most important printings of that year, if not the entire block. I mean, it was as pivotal in many ways as Trinosphere was for the workshop archetype, and in fact, in vintage more generally. So that the card could not have been more impactful. <laughs> it's the opposite of the opposite of Yavimaya, uh, the uh, Mr. Baby Cakes card. Right. Well, Steve. And for our audience, obviously one of the ways in which you personally and a lot of us evaluate new printings is how unique is the effect. Not only was Crucible of the World, Crucible of the World totally unique when it was printed, it has remained totally unique since. There simply isn't, well, there any, are isn't anything else that lets you play lands directly out of your graveyard over time like this. There are cards that allow you to recur land. Um, you know, the, sure, uh, there are Life from the, the Loam and light, yeah. plenty of other but, very effective but, and useful cards, but this literal effect, it's very difficult to get this effect, especially not over time. Yawgmoth's Will, for example, lets you play one land out of your graveyard. Right. Well, and Crucible World changed the way Vintage was played. I mean, in some ways, it was, as I said, as important as Trinosphere because Crucible changed the dynamic in terms of the smokestack, how workshops were designed. Workshop decks had relied on ramping smokestack to generate overwhelming advantage. Mm-hmm. Crucible meant you could just sit it at one and, and sit there forever. Um, it, it changed the way workshop mirrors were played. It changed the way control decks interfaced with workshops. It just changed everything. It made workshops a very different archetype. In fact, it really wasn't until Crucible was printed that workshops really started taking off. It wasn't Trinosphere. It was, it was Crucible. Absolutely. And also, <laughs> this card demonstrates something which we've hit on a number of times, which is how a card can be excellent in vintage and nearly irrelevant in other formats. This card had really no place in standard and has historically had occasional peaks of usefulness in legacy, but in no other format is this card maximized like it is in vintage. And there are a number of reasons why that is. Its casting cost of three colorless, for example, has a particularly significant meaning in vintage compared to any other format. In any other format, three mana is middle of the road. It's not hard to cast, but you can't be early game with it, for example. In Vintage, though, we all know that this is a turn one play in the decks where it's played. And the combination of its uniqueness and its utility and its synergy with the rest of the workshop archetypes 
means that even to this day, it's a everyday occurrence in vintage top eights. This card. Yep, and it's a it's a form of card advantage that workshops didn't really have like that before. Good point. And it it sort of pushed uh, welder. I mean, it began the trend of pushing welder down, and in the trend towards colorless. Yep, mono brown mud. And so that brings us to the third. And you said already it started with flavor. And how did they start with flavor? What does that mean? The first choice presented in You Make the Card 3 was the card's art, a completely top-down approach. They presented to the viewership a list of 10 pictures with no context. That is to say, no context other than what the pictures bring themselves. And (laughs) the users voted. And that was the beginning of the process, purely top-down. The winning image of a, a woman ostensibly in a kind of wispy state with her hair flowing off into kind of vanishing into the distance and some ethereal stuff coming out of her fingertips. This card could have gone in a million different directions. And so after the art was chosen, the next step in the third iteration was the card type. So here again, we have card type being somewhat perverted because we had this image which ostensibly had a humanoid figure on it so creature was one of the possibilities for card type but the only other two were enchantment and instant slash sorcery so we've got again an abbreviated and altered list of card types that the users could vote on right so that's that's actually something i want to touch on so the, the art itself in some subjective way wizards decided could only be a certain number of cards or card types. Exactly. And, and and that's that's well, that's a completely subjective thing, right? I mean, why couldn't this be an artifact? Why couldn't this be a... Uh, what were the three that they said? They chose creature, enchantment, and instant sorcery were combined into one choice, which yes. is another interesting topic that we can get to. <laughs> but you're right. An arbitrary choice made on aesthetic grounds only. Describe why. Because there's not a mechanical object in the, in view or what? You know, I'm sure I could find some artifacts that that aren't terribly dissimilar to that. It's pretty clear why land wasn't chosen. The card has no discernible setting with which to describe a place. The background is entirely obfuscated. So I can understand land being really counterintuitive for this art. But I'm with you that I think Artifact maybe should have still been on the list. However, I imagine that if it was fourth on the list of possibilities in their eyes and Crucible of Worlds had been the winner for the previous one, it's somewhat defensible for them just leaving it off the list in the same way that they left green off the list for the second run. What's also interesting, though, is when you present art and you make players choose, what is the selection criteria? I mean, art is such a... It's such a, an emotional, subjective thing where people have connection to art that when you are forced to select art, are you selecting art that you like because you like its aesthetics? Or, or in a process like this, are you selecting art because you think it might lead to a card that you'll like? And those are two. Yeah, I think it's all of those things. I agree with you. I believe that people who were voting on these cards were likely voting with card types in mind and maybe even fully realized cards in mind. Yeah. I mean, if I was choosing a card type, I would probably choose number nine of those ten. <laughs> Kevin, look at number nine. <laughs> well, hold on. I need to switch back to it. What is it about number nine that really speaks to you? Just look at it. <laughs> For our listening audience's benefit. I want, I want to hear you try to describe number nine's art and why you like it. Well, I think number nine sort of evokes necropotence to me. It looks like a really broken card. <laughs> <laughs> See, well, 
There you go. You've just reinforced four, what we're talking three. about. Three, three looks like it could be really busted. Four, four. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's like... Uh... <laughs> well, interesting. That I, I'd like you to guess. So you know which one won, but it, without looking at the voting results, do you know which one came in second? Came in second? Yeah. Okay, let me take a look. <laughs> this, is, this is great radio <laughs> right test here. How, to test how, how, <laughs> how good I know our audience. I'm going to say piece eight. Mm, interesting. That was high on the list, but the actual number two vote getter was piece four which is pretty clearly ah. the most abstract of the lot. It is. I would say piece four and nine are extremely abstract. I agree. I'm attracted to abstract art, but that's just a personal preference. I, I'm not terribly surprised that the ultimately vanished into memory art is the one that won, because I like that one, but I would have voted for the abstract ones myself. And the most, <laughs> it's like possibly the, the most card that the- one, the monkey, number two, was the last place vote getter. So the green card was the, le- the, the least vote-getter. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the obvious green card. <laughs> Although seven could have easily been a, a green card as well. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Unfortunately, our listeners don't know what we're talking about, so we should, we should move on. So uh, after they voted on art and after the mechanical, or not mechanical, the card type option was presented, the winner was, interestingly, instant or sorcery. And going back to your comments about how people voted on art, I fully believe that instant or sorcery was not necessarily the preference of the audience at large, but that yeah. it was most evoked by this art. Yeah. It definitely looks That's active best. and is not focused necessarily on the the being in, in the picture, but what's going on or happening around yeah. them. I think what concerns me, though, is when, I mean, when you are asked to select an art, if some people select the art because they like its aesthetics and some people select the art because they think that the art represents a particular card type or a color that they or a card effect that they like then you have people that voting essentially on very different things naturally and 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 that i think can be a problem <laughs> it's you know it's not like i mean it can it can be a problem be, and, and that's the sort of thing where i think a runoff is very useful because then it consolidates and focuses people's choices i and, think uh, it, i think that you take a very spiky mechanical view of magic you're Definitely a self-admitted non-Vorthos player, and I would say that is your predilection showing through in how you view this thing as, and use the word problematic. I see there's no problem in this. I mean, it's pretty clear that magic is designed for all the different player types. And some people, I, I know several people, who will choose and play a card based on its art. That's a common thing, in especially in the casual world, obviously less so in tournament magic, but... But look at basic lands, for example. You, you yourself have preferred basic lands, right? Yeah, I guess it's I guess the same problem I have with people who vote for presidents because they want to have a beer with them. <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of like you know, instead of actual policy positions or um, or values, you know, it's like I like that person. I like the way they look, or I like the cut of their jib. That's you know, it's like <laughs> for me, I, I'm very much in the mindset of you should vote for these cards because these, this art because it, you think it represents either an effect or a card slash creature type that you want. I so. I understand completely. I think it's pretty clear that R and D was exercising their goal of being more inclusive with this process. The first two you make the card contests began with a very mechanical choice, color, quote-unquote, and then a combination of color and card type with artifact included. This way they're going at the total other end of the spectrum and being more inclusive of different player types. And I have a feeling it had a little bit to do with marketing folks and a lot of different people in the room coming up with how they were going to conduct these things. 
So go ahead, go ahead and tell us what the final card was. Describe it. Oh, well, for those of you who haven't been following along or didn't hear me earlier, Vanish Into Memory was the result. So ultimately, we ended up with an instant for two white-blue exile target creature. You draw cards equal to that creature's power. At the beginning of your next upkeep, return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control. If you do, discard cards equal to that creature's toughness. It's a very dense card, and I'm, I am fascinated to find that this was the output of a process that began from a very flavorful standpoint, because this card is actually very spiky. It's just not very good also, which yeah. some people might view as a contradiction, but I don't think it is. You can have spiky cards that are bad, and this is one of them. It's very complex, very wordy. It deals with things leaving play, have, having to remember what they were and where they are, dealing with Yep. multiple different criteria of a card's state before and after it left. It's just a really complex and yep. spiky card for one that began with voting on art. I know that I know that the top-down flavor approach to design is popular, especially in this cycle of design that we're in. But I have to say, having written you know six, seven chapters now on the history of vintage and looked at it, looked into the design, the making of each of the sets in those years. Mm-hmm. It seems pretty fairly clear to me that I have a very strong preference for the sets that were designed by designers at the outset and not sets that were designed by artists. So looking specifically, the sets that were designed initially by artists were the Dark Homelands and some of the sets, beginning with the Weatherlight set were framed by storylines. Yep. So and I have a, the, the the set that was that stands out by Wizards of the Coast as a set of the for designers by designers was Alliances and I think Alliances is absolutely spectacular and one of my favorite sets historically. So I uh, I have a I have a preference strong preference for design approach rather than a flavor approach to set design and card design. I would say you should probably replace the word design for mechanical in that assessment because design in the modern terminology is the thing that happens first after development and design can encompass a lot of things. But right. I, I, I mean, take your meaning I, exactly. I, I approach sets that are designed by designers. <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> gotcha. As opposed to yeah, as opposed to on the basis of flavor, art, themes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There is one other set that is, of course, initially framed by themes. That's Arabian Nights. Naturally. Well, in the early days of Magic are defined basically by a top-down sort of design aesthetic because it was it was during Arabian Nights when obviously the whole they were choosing from an existing setting just like Portal 3 Kingdoms but also in Legends you have people's Dungeons and Dragons characters being made into magic cards so you can't get many much more top down than that so that brings us to 2000, March 2013 so there's been a what an almost 9 year gap here I know it's incredible actually and, and I hadn't noticed it had been so long if you had asked me a month ago how long it's been I would have said oh it's probably been a number of years but <laughs> not 9 <laughs> <clears throat> just goes to show you how time flies the game has changed so much, and yet they have basically returned to form with You Make the Card 4, with the first choice being card type. And for the first time, players are basically having the option to vote on land as one of the options, but they have excluded Planeswalker and Tribal, which are two of the things that contributes to Tarmogoyf's power. <laughs> That's one of the things I wanted to talk on. So let's talk about what we predict the steps are going forward based upon what they've done in the past. So... By the time that our listeners listen to this, the card type may have already been chosen. But if it's not, we strongly encourage you to go vote now. 
vote. This is why I say vote early and vote, vote often. often. <laughs> you, can vote as, you can vote as many times as you want. Go to different browsers. Go to the library. Open. <laughs> vote, 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 vote. I've, I myself have already voted three times. Nice. And I've just begun. So I did it on the iPad, iPhone, and laptop. There you go. <laughs> Let's talk about what we think the next steps will be. So, Kevin, you just pointed out Planeswalkers missing, Tribals missing, and yet they've also collapsed um, Instant and Sorcery. Mm-hmm. Do you think that will have any effect on the voting? Well, no, I don't. I imagine and I expect that most players view instants and sorceries as functionally identical. The differentiation between instant and sorcery is really one of a development issue. Now, I know that that is not technically correct. Of course, there are distinctions, but I'm talking about the views of the community at large. I think it's quite fair to combine instant and sorcery into one. Obviously, I think people will favor instant over sorcery, but I think if you separate them, then that's effectively voting sorcery out of the pool of options. That's a a fair point. It it is probably effectively. I mean, I would say that between the two, instants definitely have a larger larger, uh, base of span support. Naturally. (laughs) It's also worth noting that 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 was borne out in the, you know, we make the card three, because at one point as they were choosing casting costs, they offered up lower casting cost sorceries or higher casting cost instance and a higher casting cost instant on that voting process. One of the things I have concerns about, though, is you're you're leaving enchantments separate. I mean, what do you think has a larger base of support, enchantments or sorceries? Oh, boy. I, one could... I have, I have no idea. <laughs> Between those two, yeah, I would argue that those weird... two, if you were to break out instants and sorceries, I would argue that sorcery and enchantment are going to be vying for the last spot in the list. Exactly. <laughs> they're going to be six and seven on the list if you keep them separate. Keeping in mind that I think Vanish into Memory had enchantment got the second most votes. It did. But by but something think, of a large I margin. I think it's weird here that they didn't they didn't make it artifact slash enchantment and then allow people to you know. But not entirely weird. I mean, the fact that they combined sorcery and instant it seems to me is leaving enchantment out the drive. It's a little bit like the March Madness selection committee. <laughs> Yeah. The other thing, though, is that I'm curious what your thought is about leaving out Planeswalker. They say Planeswalkers are too complicated for you to make the card. Do you think that's it, or do you think there's something else to it? I think there's something else to it also. I think Planeswalkers are certainly the most complex card to design, and they, in R&D, haven't even quite got it right yet. They're still learning on those. They're the newest card type. Also, Planeswalkers are intrinsically tied to their marketing program. So they don't want the community, I think, to be building something that's so tied to pictures of people who are going to be on packs. And, and I would be the I would would you have voted for Planeswalker if you could? Yes, I think I would have. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I don't know. Let's make it off, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just the thing is Planeswalkers appeal to everyone, really. You and I love them as vintage players. They're such a cool card type in vintage. They're so useful and they bring so much interesting play value. And everybody else loves them in all other formats. They're powerful and interesting and marquee. And I think they just. At this stage, I mean, in this, you make the card. I think they just didn't want to leave that kind of power in the hands of the community, but I wouldn't rule it out for a future one. Oh, it's worth noting that that brings up an interesting point. They can funnel this process to be as controlled as they want to. They could say, you're going to develop the next Planeswalker. His name is this. He's green and blue. And here's your choice of the first abilities. And here's three options. You know, they can, they can do that. But I think they probably felt that they didn't want to be quite so funneled. 
Yeah. You know, it's we are eternal. So part of our interest in this whole process and the excitement of it is the opportunity to create vintage cards. Right. Naturally. So putting on our vintage hats here and, and obviously being aware of all the caveats and limitations that, you know, everyone in the magic community can vote on this. What cards from a vintage perspective are most interesting? What card types do you think would be most interesting given the composition of the state of vintage right now? Let's go through all of them. I mean, artifacts, do you think vintage has the need for new powerful artifacts? <sighs> okay, need, I would not put it as need, but new and interesting artifacts will shake up the environment and be interesting and be fun. So from that standpoint, I would welcome a new artifact. Okay, what about creature? The likelihood of a creature being vintage playable is much high, uh, much lower. So I would be disinclined to choose creature from a vintage perspective because I think the odds of us coming up with a vintage playable one are low. Exactly. Exactly. I think, and the same could some could probably be said for enchantment. There are very few enchantments that see play in vintage, I, right? Yeah, and I'd like to call out a clarity for our listening audiences. I don't mean to say that they won't develop a powerful enough creature for vintage. Right. I don't think they'll develop a unique or or utility-wise, a, a useful enough creature for vintage. Well, you've just you've just pointed out something very important that we should probably touch on now. And there's a distinction between power and utility. Naturally. So, so it, in vintage, there are cards that see plenty of play that are very good, but don't necessarily see play in other formats. So cards like Trinisphere, Chalice of the Void, and Tendrils of Agony are enormously powerful in vintage, and yet. I don't think any of those cards saw much play in standard. That's right. But And similarly, by the same token, there are cards like Ingot Chewer or Ancient Grudge that are enormously useful in Vintage and see no play in Legacy. So they're, just because a card is very good in, in Vintage, this is a mistake I think a lot of players make, is assume, well, you know, us as Vintage players, if we're talking about you make the card in the context of Vintage, that any card they would make would be problematic in other formats. That's not even remotely the case. Even powerful cards in Vintage, like Trinisphere or Tendrils of Agony, are not necessarily, or heck, Lightsteel Colossus, <laughs> aren't necessarily problematic in other formats. Naturally. Some cards are problematic in other formats and can only be allowed to exist in Vintage. It's pretty clear that they wouldn't make a card in that category. But you don't have to look much further than a previous you-make-the-card winner of Crucible of Worlds to demonstrate this point. If you and I had yes. been choosing that card, or had been podcasting at the time when that card was being developed, I think we would have had a, a field day talking about the options, and the fact that they came up with that would have been extremely exciting for us at the time. It still is. Right. But the simple fact is is that creature abilities need to be in a very narrow band of utility to apply to Vintage. There, the, the list of creatures that see play in Vintage is, it's not 10 creatures, it's it's longer than that, but it's not very long. Right, I mean, and a good portion of them are, are invitational cards. <laughs> That's true. So, yeah, the legacy community, at least as judged by the support of the thread on the source, seems to be very much in support of the creature, and what they want is, what a number of people they're asking for, is the completion of the red, of the uh, creature super soul that is defined by Stoneforge Mystic, Dark Confidant, Snapcaster Mage, and uh, uh, Tarmogoyf. <laughs> they want or they, they want the red one of that. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck indeed. There have been plenty of candidates, and I guess they're just responding to the fact that none of them have been good enough. So, I mean, that really brings down to artifact, instant sorcery, and land are the three most exciting for potential vintage players, right? I mean, those are the cards that yeah. the card types that, that predominate vintage. I would agree. Land is a card that every vintage player can get behind. I think naturally <laughs> even 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 dredge players <laughs> <laughs> 
And it doesn't take much for, again, power versus utility. Certain lands like Bojukabog, for example, are just awesome examples of utility that doesn't come necessarily with power. Just utility and and the way they fit the the metagame is fantastic. Thespian Stage is another good example of an interesting land. Um, So so I think most intrigued by artifacts, instant sorcery, and land. So there's uh, a number of vintage community members are sort of questioning whether vintage players should should have a, uh, much of a say or organize around this. Because, you know, my in, in, impulse when this thing was announced is Eternal players may be a small segment, but we if we organize, we can represent, we can push the vote or nudge the card in certain directions. And then some play, I think Nat Moe's pointed out, if you look at the card creation form, it's probably a good thing that vintage players don't have much influence <laughs> judging by the cards there. So I think there's really an underlying question, which is to what extent is it a good thing or not a good thing that vintage the cards aren't are or are not designed for vintage? I mean, there is a, an argument to be made that it's a good thing that the cards not be designed for vintage, that cards that are end up in vintage are there as a byproduct, dental byproduct. Um, rather than intent. After all, the cards that have been designed for Vintage in recent years that we know of, like Lodestone Golem and Chalice, have not necessarily been the best, most healthy thing for the format. So, and and from a historical perspective, which I now have an increasing appreciation for, you know, if you look at the 20 years of, of Vintage history, of the, the format, the original Magic format, into Type 1, into Vintage, which has shared the same restricted list, random restricted list, because it's the same format, functionally, um, you know, you have roughly 15 cards, you know, 15 meaningful cards introduced into the vintage type one card pool every year. Number of cards trickle out as new cards trickle in. And that provides a really stable, slow and gradual evolution for the format. If, if Wizards were designing cards for Vintage on a more regular basis, Vintage might not have that stability, that sense of... Um, um, slow accumulation. You're referring to how vintage evolves in a way that's not based on new information, but the choices that players make with an existing card pool. Yes, I, what I'm trying to say is that vintage has a feel, and that feel is defined in part by the lack of card rotation and the very, relatively speaking, tiny number of printings that make it into the card pool. So it has a sense of a very stable card pool that that ages very. Sl- it's a format that seems to age slowly, and that feel, that sense of underlying stability at the foundation of it, is part of its allure. It's a format that you can evaluate and compare over time. Um, and if you begin designing cards for vintage, you might it might undermine that sense of stability of of history, the weight of history behind it. So there's something to be said for not designing cards for vintage, for just allowing cards to naturally accumulate. Um, but then again, there is something to be said for designing cards for vintage. And I think probably one of the most important ways of that is dealing with with problematic decks. And while I'm not quite ready to say this is the case, I think a number of people probably share the view that workshop decks right now are a little overpowered. And so one of the first things that I saw when thinking about this is how great it would be to design a potential answer for workshops. And uh, I'd like to talk about a few of those in a few minutes. But what are your thoughts on that whole idea of what a, of the evolution of vintage and designing cards for vintage or not designing cards for vintage? I have definitely grown to appreciate that which you described about the way vintage evolves without new printings just redefining the format. But it's, to me, it's something we've talked about a number of times before, and I 
think that we may be risking saying that we like that so much at the exclusion of something else just because that's the way it's been for so long. I am not immediately prepared to say with certainty that if something new came along and really shook Vintage up that I would dislike that thing or that shake up. But at the same time, I'm on record as saying a number of times before that Vintage is very resilient it would be very difficult to print a single card that would totally overhaul the format in this day and age. That said, there are, and if such a card were to do that, there's a very good chance it would be quickly restricted because of if it was that good to change the whole format, there's a very good chance that it would be due to its power. It would be hard-pressed to create a card that would shake up the format and still not be dominant to the degree we're talking about. I'm picturing if Mishra's Workshop never existed, for example, yep. I know that's impossible to envision the last 20 years of Magic without Mishra's Workshop, but if it didn't exist and we'd been playing Vintage all along and we were up to today with no Workshop archetype to speak exactly. of, what if they printed Mishra's Workshop today? That right. that's the kind of card that I suppose could reshape the landscape of that's, vintage. If, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And so when you it's it's sort of like comparing restrictions to unrestrictions. Like unrestrictions are analogous to sort of printings that fil- somehow filter their way into vintage. Yep. But a restriction is a targeted decision at the heart of the format that you're touching something that's very important or central to the format. Printing a new card for vintage is as, in a sense like targeting the heart of the format. It's the complex system that you're disturbing. And and when you create a card for vintage and every time they've done it of recent past the results have not been that great <laughs> that's a good point i, I mean i don't know if people out there are really thrilled that lodestone golem exists <laughs> and you you and i are both on record in our own way of being generally against changing the format in in narrowly targeted ways like you're talking about we yeah, both I mean, tend to prefer to let the format heal itself. I'm all about evolution, improvement, etc. But the, the allure of the format is its historiosity. Mm-hmm. The allure of the format is its conservative nature. It's slow changing. It's slow changing system. You know, and that isn't to say that the format doesn't evolve. It does. It's not to say the metagame doesn't change. It does. But the stability is a huge part of the of of what vintage is. I think that what we're getting at here, uh, f- functionally, looking at the process of you make the card, is that what would really impact Vintage is one of two things. Something that was very unique. We're talking we're talking Oath of Druids, Bazaar of Baghdad's Dredge mechanic combination. Uh, we're talking the previously unheralded Mishra's Workshop, if it didn't exist before. Something really unique. Or something that's just horribly horribly utilitarian <laughs> something like your Kwasali pride mage or your ancient grudge or your ingot chewer that just really fills a niche in vintage and allows different decks to answer a lot of scenarios like graft digger's cage graft digger's yeah. cage well well graft digger's cage is the sort of card that could have come out of a you make the card concept <laughs> exactly because it seems so targeted to vintage in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it obviously wasn't, but it seems that way. But we've already covered in great detail how utility cards won't shake up the format. Grafdigger's Cage, for as powerful as it is, 
has not upended vintage. It's just been that's right. It's just been absorbed, right. subsumed so into the metagame. Right. And so I think that's the kind of card I would love to see. I mean, let's talk about a few of those. I mean, um, Rich Shea has his uh, channel card. It's a, a card with the mechanic channel, which they wouldn't print in these. You make the cards. I mean, it seems pretty clear that unless it's a part of a block that has that mechanic, they're not going to print cards with mechanics like channel or kicker or storm or whatever. But what um, he has is a, a card that's either red or green. You can pay channel destroy an artifact. Mm-hmm. So it's you know you discard it. Um, my card is a zero. Ca- Tell me if you think this is too good. <laughs> a zero casting cost blue instant that counters an artifact. Now keep bear in mind before you answer that question, it's strictly it's it's not strictly better than steel sabotage, mm-hmm. and or it's an not all. or an all. Both because a null can counter an enchantment and steel sabotage can bounce an artifact. Mm-hmm. And this card can also be countered by Chalice for zero. So, you know, what do you think? I think that such a card could definitely be printed. Uh, and you've already you've already highlighted how it's it does not break any rules. It's totally printable. It's not overly balanced in favor of one uh, well, the only problem really is that it's not a it's not a colored card per se. So it's it's probably going to get excluded from the possibilities of voting throughout this process. Well, it could have the yeah, it could have the card. <laughs> I mean, what I'm getting at is after card type is chosen, assuming instant their sorcery is the winner, the next choice is going to be one of two directions. It's going to be top down or bottom up. It's either going to be a choice about the flavor of the card or its mechanic. And either way, you're going to ultimately end up choosing a casting cost. And yep. almost invariably, zero mana is not going to be one of the options. <laughs> okay, so I do want, you're, you're speculating as to what you think the next steps are going to be before we do that. Let's finish this part of this discussion. Yeah, that's fine. But your- I, I didn't want to switch topics. I just wanted to point out how getting a zero casting cost colored effect um, yeah. into this, out of this process is going to be probably, probably impossible. So, um, and, and that I think underscores the ways in which process shapes the card's outcome. Definitely. Unintent- unintent- sometimes unintentionally. Definitely. Though. I want to mention Urza's workshop because in the Antiquities War, the Brothers War, Urza and Mishra obviously were at war. Mm-hmm. And Mishra's workshop generates three mana for <laughs> the workshop armies. Urza's workshop could be a land that generates a mana either for each artifact your opponent controls or, you know, the original way I thought of it was, will it be cool to have a card that allows you to break out a workshop's lock, but does it specifically tailor to workshop? So it'd be a card, a land that taps for two mana if your opponent controls two or more artifacts. But then I thought, well, what, wouldn't it be cool if you tap for three mana if your opponent has three or more artifacts? So Toad, uh, Matthew Duran, one of our teammates, said, well, it should probably just tap for one mana for each artifact an opponent controls. The problem I have with that is that I want to be able to tap it for a colorless if my opponent doesn't, you know, on turn one, if my opponent doesn't have any artifacts in play. But in any case, that would be a, a nice way to, uh, to answer workshops, don't you think? I agree that it would. They can't print that card in the way that Matthew described it because of Commander. You can't play a land in Commander that on turn three taps for seven mana. Did Commander decks really have that many artifacts in play? Their opponents have that many artifacts in play? Yes, That's- when you're playing against four opponents and uh, and one of them put down a Soul Ring and a Signet on turn one. and But... That notwithstanding, you could have it choose an opponent, for example. You could tap for mana yes. equal to the number of artifacts target opponent controls or something like that. There you uh, go. Or, or the highest number of artifacts among your opponents. There's ways you could structure it to not make it ridiculous in multiplayer, but 
your point is well made. My concern for that is that <laughs> I wonder what effect that would have in the workshop mirror. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fascinating. But you're right. It's a very interesting way to, quote unquote, punish workshops for having so many lock pieces in play is that that land just would scale up and get you out from under all those lock pieces. It's not necessarily a, a card you could main deck, although you possibly could. It depends on how it's worded. If it tapped it for be- one colorless natively, then I think you could play it. Maybe. Yes. But the, but if you did it the other way, the way Matthew suggested, then it would be a interesting sideboard card, and it would be a you know anyway, it'd be an interesting card for vintage. But it goes to that that point that designing cards for vintage is very dangerous. It is very you dangerous. Can disturb, you can disturb a delicate ecosystem. Mm-hmm, definitely. So if you you're rank ordering your preferences here, which cards would just based on card type, knowing nothing about what the card will do, which card types, generally speaking, what would be your order? Well, I would put enchantment. Well, I would put creature pretty far down the list. Possibly not. Just give me your your list, one through five. Having not done this before right now, I would choose land, artifact, instant sorcery, enchantment, creature. Okay, what do you think casual players would probably prefer? So kitchen table players, what do you think their preference is? Kitchen table players, the EDH crowd, my guess is going to go... Oh, I kitchen table. I don't, well, I don't want to... I know they're not the same thing, but the kitchen table players are almost certainly going to go creature first, and yeah. after that, it'll be, I'm guessing, a mixture between land and artifact. That's, probably, that's my that's Probably my sense. land first. But I thought Doug, Doug Lynn said that casual players probably would not go for creature. So I was wondering... It's interesting, the, you know... My, my supposition would be that Creature is probably among the wider number of Magic players, the, the first preference. Yet the MTG Salvation poll, which some have alluded to, say Land is leading right now. I find Land surprising. Land, I think, is a very interesting strategic choice mm-hmm. because Land is a card that, regardless of the card that, you know, so if you, there's so many ways to divvy up and slice and dice the Magic player. You can do it by Psychographics, Timmy, Spike, Orthos, whatever. Mm-hmm. You can slice it, diet, dice it by style, people who like control, people who like it beatdown, people who like combo. But land is one of those few things that almost every, almost every psychographic type can get behind. So it, it, it underscores one of my underlying concerns about the structure of the voting, which is that there are people, what I just asked you to do, Kevin, was to rank what your preferences were based upon being a vintage player. Mm-hmm. But what I think is that that's a problematic way to vote. The way that the voting is structured is that a plurality will win. You only need to get, you need you need to get at least 20% of the vote and perhaps just a little bit more. I mean, if, if we look back, we've seen that when you have just a few options, it doesn't take much more than the uh, than the average to, to get there. Right. You know? Um, and so given the plurality, I think strategic voting is very, very, very important. And people who vote just upon what they want are essentially, I think, I don't think, I think it's fair to say being irrational. Because let me explain. No, let me explain. No, I, I'm just laughing because I think it's it's a funny phraseology that is defensible, and I'm anticipating what you're going to say. So, for example, let's take your preference set. You have creature as last, right? Mm-hmm. And what was you, your first is land, and your second was what? Artifact. Artifact. You know, it's like sort of like you wake up for Christmas, you you have a Christmas list, and you know your first choice is is land, your last choice is creature, and you open the the toy the uh, you open you tear off the wrapper, you open the box, and you see a creature in there. <laughs> you're like. <laughs> But mom, I, I asked for artifact. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's like if, if you're being strategic, strategic voting, I think smart voting, or let's put it another way, non-stupid voting, you want to vote for something that you think most people will vote. If you think, I think it's fair to say, Kevin, I don't know about you, but I think it's probably likely that enchantment will get the least number of votes. I think that's... Let's suppose you really love enchantments, right? Right. Well, but 
but you really hate creatures, voting for enchantment is a de facto vote for creature, assuming that enchantments is going to get the least number of votes because you're you're lowering the threshold the creature needs to win a plurality by voting for enchantment. Mm-hmm. It's it's a vote that can't it's not going to win. It's like voting for Ron Paul for president. You might love Ron Paul, but but he's not going to win. And by voting for him, you're, it's actually worse than voting for Ron Paul because in this case, <laughs> you can actually just throw away your vote. This is not throwing away your vote. The the, the threshold plurality is actually lowered <laughs> by 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 voting that way. Right. So um, it's it's really problematic. And the reason it's irrational is because if your second preference is something that has a chance of winning, your vote could actually matter. And I'm assuming, of course, that we don't have an opportunity to persuade vast. There's no mechanism or outlet for persuading vast numbers of casual players to switch, <laughs> right? So that well, I'm assuming that people will just come in and vote without mediation um, or intervening opportunities. I would agree. Um, so here, you know, to really maximize your preference set, you need to vote strategically. And my sense is that my sense, which could be very wrong, <laughs> is that majority of creature, not mass majority, but a strong plurality will probably gravitate towards creature, and that. If we want to make something that is um, vintage useful, we probably have to get behind instant or sorcery. Although, because I didn't, I just don't see land having a, a good chance of winning, just like enchantment. Um, that said, the fact that Le- Mark Hornung has now offered me a wager, he hasn't said what he'd like to wager on. He thinks land is going to win, and I would, I would welcome that. But it seems to me that if if, if land is unlikely to win, then it's a completely wasted vote. There are so many interesting topics that you're bringing up there, but I I would just like to offer up that your analysis, I believe, is mathematically well-founded. It starts from the assumption of the standpoint that a player, that winning the vote is all that matters, which for voting is, generally speaking, a pretty fair assumption. It's about getting your highest preference yeah. uh, enacted vis-a-vis your not vis-a-vis not having your lowest preference enacted, right? So- except, hold on, except there is... There's something else to be said for being quote unquote honest, which is to say letting wizards know which cards you prefer. Because going back to one of my comments about the first three you make the card processes, this process is not just about giving us a, a, a narrow slice of players the kind of card they want. It's also about communicating with your audience. I just wanted to throw that case, out there. That's the case. I think there needs to be a runoff because if you have a runoff, yeah. then I think people can afford to be honest without sacrificing, you know, without really sacrificing one of their higher preferences. I see. Because I think that's fair. And th- that's what I'm actually suggesting is that I would much rather see a runoff vote. That way people could vote what they really want to see without having their their fifth preference actually enacted, you know? Right. Um, they, that way they'd have another bite of the apple, so to speak, to really not, you know, vote against their fifth, their last preference. And we don't know if that's going to happen. With so relatively few choices, with only five choices, the need for a runoff is is pretty I slim. Think- but at the same, but if the people have the same concern that you do, or if the results are very close, I think you absolutely need a runoff so that people have the opportunity to vote what they really want instead of a strategic vote. I think part of the premise, that which you just said, is predicated on the notion that Creatures is going to win if you don't do anything else. Right. So I'm making an assumption about what yeah. most players yeah. will, will like. And that assumption could very well be – that's an empirical question yeah. that, that I'm basing simply upon my knowledge of, of magic players. And there are, my limited knowledge, and imperfect knowledge of, of casual magic players and probably, who probably constitute the great bulk of voters. But my, sense, my point, though, is that if we're sort of being rational creatures, 
creatures here and we're trying to implement our highest preferences, you can't just focus on what is your number one preference because you'd rather have your second or your third preference over your fifth. And therefore, it is more rational to vote for a second preference that has a chance of winning than your first preference that doesn't. And I, I, I take great issue with the contrarian attitude of some players who just want to go in and vote for what they want. That is, to me, just not it's 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 silly. It's ir- irrational. And I, I know people don't like it when I say that, but that's the truth. <laughs> it's simply the truth. Wouldn't you say, though, that because we don't know whether or not there will be a runoff, then we don't have a way of choosing between the two approaches? I, I think that I think we do, because in every case in which they said there's going to be a runoff, they've said there will be a runoff. Uh, if, if you go back and look at the pages, they'll say there will be a runoff vote. Oh, I didn't. I didn't actually pay that close of attention to all of the historical choices to gather that. Well, I don't know all of them, but I'm looking at some of them, and they do. For example, step 10 of the first one, it says, we will we will show there will be a runoff vote. <laughs> I would say they probably offered that up in advance when there were 10 choices. But right. if there's only with only five choices, that leads away from the utility of a runoff. But, but again, it's not about that. It's about the utility of the runoff is defined by... By the met by the sort of structure of what I've decided, the game theory decision of voting, yeah. which I outlined, which is that you need a runoff so that people can enact their higher preference, so that in the initial voting people can express themselves symbolically to wizards, so wizards know what people want, and then secondly, so they can enact their higher preference. So it's a utilitarian thing. It is pretty utilitarian. I would say that in addition to the assumption that lots of uh, kitchen table players prefer creatures, I would add the assumption that a lot of players coming to this process who maybe do or do not even read this site on a day-to-day basis, a lot of them are not going to approach this process with a utilitarian aspect. They're going to look at it and say, I like Lance, or I want I want a new artifact. But isn't that how everyone votes? I mean, Well, you're, you you're clearly not voting that way. <laughs> No, but I am, though. I mean, my sense is that, um, I mean... The approach that you're talking about is very unintuitive. When people vote for politicians or whatever, I mean, I think, that, you know, ideally, in, people would vote for a politician who has the policies that best represent their views. Yet that's not what people actually do. Otherwise, you would have write-in candidates for almost every person in the country. But instead, you vote for the person who's closest to your views of the major party, <laughs> who's, who's likely to win. So but We're getting pretty far afield here. There's a lot of differences between this process and politics. No doubt, no doubt. My point is that I don't think a lot of people who approach this, I would be surprised if if a small percentage actually approach it with the sort of critical game theory that you're looking at. Most people, the majority of people are going to come up here. They're going to think about what they want, maybe critically, but they're not going to think about the voting process critically. It's not really really that, you know, it's not rocket surgery, as you're (laughs) fond of saying, to say, I love enchantments, but I'm kind of have a sense that enchantments aren't going to win, so I'm going to vote for my second uh, Steve, favorite choice. Take a look at what you do for a living <laughs> and then reevaluate what you think of the rest of the world. I would simply say that the vast majority of people are not going to take this analytical approach to the voting process to make a secondary or tertiary decision to be their first vote. That's simply not going to happen. Most people are going to vote honestly. I would love, I would, you know, people are saying to me, I hate, you know, um, what, what's wrong with land? Nothing's wrong with land. I would love for land to win. 
I just don't think Land is going to win. If it does, I'll I'll be the first to applaud. That would be great. I think Land Land is a card type that is so open for design options and opportunities. I think it's a very exciting thing. A land can be anything. Mm-hmm. It can be a, it can be a mana producer, a spell, or a creature. <laughs> it can even be a creature artifact. <laughs> We've seen enough variants in card design at this point that pretty much any one of these card types could become the other of it card type at a moment's notice. <laughs> Right. We've had lands that turn into creatures and enchantments that turn into creatures and instants that make creatures and creatures that you can play that have flash that function like spells. I mean, that's true. I mean, there's the hidden given cards, enchantments that become. There's sleeping enchantments. There's yep. <laughs> all kinds of every every direction of card type. I think has been done from one to the other. But I think it's interesting to note that people who people who like they voted for say the art on Vanish into Memory as we discussed, people aren't necessarily just voting on the aesthetics of that art, but they're making some assumptions in their own mind. Like this looks like it could be a cool X, or boy, this really looks like a Y to me. And the same I think goes for voting on card types. People don't just vote on artifact, for example, and say, "Oh, I think an artifact would be fun." They're already thinking a few steps down the line. They're thinking, "Boy, I need a new artifact that does that," or "I'd like to see an artifact that does this or fills this hole." Or I mean, or what? What I what we thought is would be great to have answers to workshops. Now, obviously, exactly, it seems extremely unlikely. Extremely unlikely. <laughs> That wizards would allow the you make the card process to to be a narrow vintage hate card. Right. <laughs> Agreed. But, I, but what I'm getting I, at though is that th- yeah. there's an interesting thing I think going on that's unique to lands. Unlike all other card types, lands perform a very fundamental role in the game. This is no surprise to anyone. People who like yes. lands, people who say, "Oh, I love lands. They're one of my favorite card types." They are probably mixed in with their assessment of lands. They're they're mixing in that fundamental nature of lands give me mana. They're very functional. They're they're utilitarian, and they do these other unique things like ancient uh, academy ruins and uh, yeah, and Vora strongholds. In that context, it's worth putting a, a historical note on that, which is that in Alpha there were the, every land in Alpha produced mana. Right. There was no non-mana right. producing lands. It wasn't until Arabian Nights, the first expansion set, that had ten non-basic lands that did all sorts of things like draw cards, deal damage, uh, remove flying from creatures. Right. You know, (laughs) and that comparison uh, is exactly what I'm talking about. People might be voting for land because they think of the collective nature of the two schools you just described. There is no way that we're going to get a dual land out of this process. Yes. (laughs) That's my my expectation. There's just no way you can't. Yeah. You can't. (laughs) What what two colors are you going to choose? Yeah. Oh, black and white. Well, I'm going to stop reading this process now. You know, that's just not going to happen. So if people who are choosing land are intrinsically voting for a utility land. Well, it's possible that by promoting instant sorcery, I'm actually undermining my own cause because my second preference is land. And yet, according (laughs) to the MTG salvation poll, instant sorcery only has 10 percent of the vote. Of course, the MTG Salvation poll is probably not representative, but well, there's, there's that. If if what you just said is true, then I suppose maybe you are undermining your own goal. But but the simple fact is is that there's so much baked into this. There's so much personal preference and secondary and tertiary considerations. You've gone to the voting process as one of them. You've gone to your – and we collectively have gone to our preference for vintage as another one. Every voter has – five, ten different things that is important to them when it comes to choosing such a simple choice. Here's how I approach it, though, and this is the most overriding and important point. To me, it's imperative that we defeat Creature. (laughs) Because it seems to me that the Creature has almost no chance of being vintage playable. (laughs) 
almost any one of these cards could be, as long as it's not a creature. <laughs> <laughs> it is very difficult to, to develop a creature that is playable in Vintage in this day and age. I mean, and part of it is because Creature is the one card type that, that seems to have the scale power across formats into Vintage. So the, the four busted legacy creatures are pretty much all playable and, in some cases, very good in Vintage. Right. That's not true of to the same degree of almost every other card type. That's a good point. A lot of the creatures that are playable in Vintage eschew that model of that they're only good in Vintage. There's a lot in common with the creature bases in Vintage and Legacy. There, with very yeah. few exceptions, Lightsteel Colossus, for example, Lodestone Golem, a number of the workshop creatures, of course. But yes. but even still, Metalworker and yes. Wormcoil Engine do see play in Legacy. Yes, yes. and other formats. And other form- yeah. And, yeah, I mean, Wormcoil Engine was good in Standard. So it's very interesting. I'm with you. The odds of them developing a creature like that just seems so low. So if that's true, if the goal for vintage players, if they want to see something that if, if assuming that it's appropriate and for vintage players to want them to design a card or the community to design a card for vintage, mm-hmm. that is assuming that we should design a card for vintage, then the imperative for vintage players is to defeat creature. The question then becomes, how do we organize in a way to defeat creature? What which one of the things will allow us to defeat creature? <laughs> now it occurs to me that if this MTG salvation poll is correct, that my pushing for instant sorcery will actually help creature win. <laughs> yeah, but maybe. But the the question is, yeah, I'm skeptical as well. Um, I'll, I want to point to another factor also, and that is Commander EDH. When people vote for with Commander in mind, I imagine that a lot of them vote thinking, "I want a card that's good in multiple Commander decks," and mm-hmm. Artifact and Land are the two that are most likely to be that way being almost assuredly colorless cards that could go in multiple commander decks. So that's something else to keep in mind. I think that's something that may be putting land and artifact near the top of the heap. It's a very utilitarian approach to a whole format, like we're thinking, but in the commander realm, I think creature is going to be very popular, and I think the notion of creating a legendary creature is going to come up if creature wins this vote. But the simple fact is, is that you go for breadth of impact with lands and artifacts in most formats. Also, I think it's worth noting, we we have been speaking sort of on two sides of the coin with this you-make-the-card process. Forgotten Ancient and Vanish in the Memory turned out to be pretty bad kitchen table kind of cards, in all, all things considered, with compared to Tournament Magic. Crucible of Worlds, we've said it before, was a big win. If you want an effect that's going to be good in Vintage, you've already said the odds of them making a hate card is very low. So what's the alternative? The alternative, in my opinion, is a very, very unique card, an effect that is unprecedented. And mm-hmm. I'm of the opinion that you're more likely to get that on a land or an artifact. Because that's, that's a- the, dev- the development process for a creature is going to invariably focus on things like its power and toughness. There's no power and toughness that hasn't yeah. been done before. There's nothing that you're going to get that's unique out of a power and toughness in Vintage. And it seems unlikely that there will be a power and toughness that really matters for Vintage. And we've <laughs> we've gone on and on at length in this show about how the, the Grizzly Bear model is really the place to be when you want a unique effect. So there's going to be a whole bunch of time talking about the casting cost versus power and toughness when all we care about is what's in the text box. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And so... 
box for me could be zero one. I'll be happy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. The odds of us getting an interesting text box, I think, are much higher on land and artifact. In fact, in fact, it's not just the. In fact, the lower the power and toughness, the better it will likely be invented because the more likely you'll have a lower casting cost. Yes. If you could set the bar at this thing as a one one for two, I would be totally happy. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. Lock that in now. That's right. I don't care what color you choose, as long as it's one designated, one colorless, and it's one one. Then have at. <laughs> <We're in. laughs> but anyway, my point is simply that if you want a good vintage card, I think we should be shooting for uniqueness here. I agree, but I also think we we also should be shooting to defeat creature. That's. The, I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, that's. I do not share your vehemence, but given that framing, I would agree. I would prefer creature not be the winner here and if we want and don't you think that's what we have to defeat right that's I, I i'm of the opinion that creature all things being equal is going to win this vote that's what we have to defeat then yeah <laughs> i mean you just set yeah. it out therefore isn't it logical <laughs> trying to organize the community to defeat it yeah fair enough i mean i understand why this, i think that, that land is the most logical second place choice there so go ahead and vote for land then <laughs> <laughs> land, land has the so many insane place stamp of approval for to make the card for <laughs> we're throwing all of our support behind land <laughs> so, so let's let's look for, <laughs> let's look forward then um, no, what forward is going to be, be dramatically different depending on which what wins this first vote if creature enchantment or instant slash sorcery win then I believe the second vote will be color. Oh, but it could switch gears to a top-down design. It could switch gears to a mechanic. So we'll see. If artifact or land win, I think it's going to be very interesting where we go, because they've already started one off with artifact, the one that resulted in Crucible of Worlds. And so I think they would probably steer away from the process that developed Crucible of Worlds. If you recall, it started with color and artifact one. The next choice was creature versus non-creature, a mechanical choice. Then they gave us the option of flavor or function, and we chose function, and then people submitted functionalities. I think they're going to go away from that process, that path, if Artifact or Land wins this one. Gotcha. It'll be very interesting to see what they choose. I am less interested to see what I, happens if Creature wins, that's for sure. I just also wanted to point out one thing. Someone might say, well, you know, what good is organizing the vintage community, even if you could, because we're such a small part? Mm-hmm. But I think the lesson of these is that it only takes a very small number to win, that the votes are so evenly divided that you only need a very marginal number of votes to push from one and one card to another i mean let's look at the final voting on forgotten ancient mm-hmm. remember it was almost 33 33 33 yep <laughs> you know it could come down to a dozen people <laughs> really it really could um it's worth noting yeah. I, I just want to call attention to the first you make the card where the, the initial choice made was color and green won that vote with blue in second place green and blue were very close I think everyone out there who's voting for creature or instant slash sorcery or enchantment should well consider that by voting for one of those three, you are almost certainly voting for a green or a blue version of those three. Fascinating. So just keep in mind, if someone out there really wants a red creature, you are probably out of luck. The legacy community. <laughs> but I just, I, but I want to go back to this point, which is that it's really a straw man to say that organizing the vintage community will have no effect. This is this is about vote tallies at the margin. Mm-hmm. That's what this is about. It's not it's not that the vintage community is going to design the entire card, but we can nudge it in a direction that is more vintage useful, more likely to and produce a card we will want. 
Yeah, it's about about, and we have multiple opportunities to do that. So the cumulative effect is actually quite powerful. I would say, you know? given the analysis I made before of what voting for a land truly means, I would wager that of the five choices here, if land wins, it probably has the greatest likelihood of being eternal playable. Right. That is to say, if creature wins, there's a high likelihood it won't be eternal playable. If enchantment wins, well, enchantment's not going to win. If Artifact yeah. wins, it could go any number of a million directions. But land, in my opinion, is going to lead us down the road of a unique effect, which well, will inherently be eternally useful, I think. I think I tend to think that if it's an Artifact, there's a really good chance it'll be eternal playable. But I think we already have... I don't really want to see another new Artifact. <laughs> I, think, I think Workshop decks have way more than enough tools right now and that's not the kind of direction we need to push vintage fair enough so you know um but yeah i, I think your analysis is basically right i mean because because you the reason i think just to reiterate my point about artifacts workshops basically give you a much greater threshold for, for playability you can basically have a card that's six casting costs or less and it can it can be vintage playable because of mishra's workshop Ooh, that's a very good point which i hadn't considered up until now if artifact wins and the effect is even marginally useful in vintage, the mana cost is almost certainly going to be playable in vintage, just yes. by definition. They're not going to design a nine mana cost artifact from this process. It's going to end up being something that costs probably two to five. Yep. And maybe one to five. I don't know. It's going to be in that range. All of which, all of those casting costs are immediately viable in workshop decks. That's a very good point. So if the vintage community doesn't want to make things worse in the workshop sense, uh, doesn't want to immediately hand them a card, then I would say avoid artifact also. That's a good point. Well, someone actually pointed out, and this is worth also mentioning, that the you make the card is, is coming along for Magic's 20th anniversary. Yes. That's, that's why we were asking the question. That's a good point. So. That is a good explanation for why they're doing it now. Now, that isn't to say that this is this process is unique to the 20th anniversary, but it's as good a time as any to re-engage with the community in this way. Well, I just pray the creature does not win <laughs> for the reasons that we have elaborated. I really want to hear from our listening audience on this one on Twitter. Tweet us about <laughs> You Make the Card and In Vintage and tell us what you think. I mean, so let's just summarize our positions very quickly. <laughs> um, we're excited about we're excited about this. We think it's a great, great opportunity. But my position is that we have to do whatever we can to defeat creature because it's very unlikely the creature will be vintage playable because creature scales cross formats pretty evenly. That that is to say that creatures that are very good in vintage are very good in standard, and that's not necessarily the case for every other card type. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's often the opposite. And I think that anyone who wants a lot of great jokes with regard to the voting process should go back and watch that Simpsons where Kang and Kodos come down and take over the presidential election between Clinton and Dole. <laughs> because there's so much material to be had <laughs> from that episode in this context. It's not even funny. Like, I want to print... <laughs> I want to print shirts that say, don't blame me, I voted for land. <laughs> <laughs> oh all right steve anything else on this whole you make the card process i think we should revisit it to see where once the voting comes out and the next steps if, if it's worth talking about we'll talk about it geez i wonder how far along it's going to be by the next time we podcast it might only be on step three for all we know <laughs> we'll be following it closely we'll give updates
that brings us to the end of episode 22 of So Many Insane Plays. If you want to discuss these and other vintage topics with us, you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. It is not gay protection game! <laughs> <laughs>